Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Diana Falzone, a senior reporter at Mediaite. And I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a great episode for you guys this week. We are speaking with Laura Coates, a former federal prosecutor who joined CNN as a legal analyst. She was recently promoted to her own show. She is the anchor of it. Uh, she's also a New York Times bestselling author. The new show is Laura Coates Live. It debuted in October. It airs weeknights at 11 p.m. Eastern. Laura Coates is still the chief legal analyst at CNN and the host of the Laura Coates Show on Sirius XM. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show and congratulations on the launch of your show on CNN. It's great hey, to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's I mean, I don't really know what time it is most of the time. But right now, seems good. AM, <laughs> where are we? Where are we? Exactly. We want to start by talking about your remarkable career. You made the transition from a very successful law career to serving as a legal analyst at CNN. How did that happen? You know what? It was something um, equal parts, I would say, serendipity and grit. Um, it was never on my personal bingo card that I would do this work, that I was planning to go in journalism. Really, it sparked because as a prosecutor and as a lawyer, fundamentally what was so appealing to me and what I feel was really my calling was the storytelling aspect, being able to be the person who could tell another person's story and then champion them in that way, to give them a voice to have them feel as though they were a full and active participant in their lives and the world around them. And that was always very, very important to me personally. And then a time came when I really thought that the combination of the work I had done, whether it was First Amendment work and constitutional law or criminal prosecution and domestic violence and um, voting rights cases and officer-involved cases as well, all that sort of combined in one moment. And I had a kind of epiphany where I said, I'd like to remove the muzzle that must accompany the work of a prosecutor and, um, and have information as a kind of um, calling that could be shared differently. And I, I really, I had no master plan. I remember leaving and giving my notice at the federal government, the Department of Justice, and many of my colleagues thinking I was completely insane and even going as far as to say, could you write your review in advance so that when you come back in a couple months, we don't have to go backwards on this? Um, but I knew that within me was this really big drive to have that information, to be able to get it out and democratize the information. And I know everyone says it's important to speak truth to power, mm -hmm. but really all the more important to know what that truth is and to be able to speak about power with authority as well. So that was really what drove me. And I honestly, you guys, I had two kids at that time. My daughter was still nursing. My kids were only 18 months apart. And um, I remember parking it in a Panera Bread and saying, I got to figure it out. Saying to my husband at the time, who fortunately is a very thin man and really enjoyed ramen noodles at the time a lot. I said, uh, I want to retire from what I'm doing and I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to hire myself and I'm going to give myself one year to try. And at the end of it, if I know that I've left it all out on the floor and whatever it is has not become that which it will be, I'm happy to go back to any open door or create something different. And I sat in a Panera Bread nursing like the cup of water with the tea and an orange scone in front of one of their fireplaces. 
and just began to write and process and document and think about what it is I wanted to say now that a muzzle was gone. What information could I provide? And um, that's where it began. It really began with that, with op-eds. It began mm-hmm. with being on radio and step after step after step after step, television. And that's where you're at right now at the anchor desk. Mm-hmm. Did you ever envision yourself having this show and sitting there and hosting a major cable network program? My God. I mean, if I were to say that I had it on a vision board, how arrogant would that be? And I guess it was not on, I knew that whatever job I had would involve me running my mouth. I'll tell you that. That was very, very clear. Um, and frankly, don't tell them this, but I would talk anyway at 11 p.m. at night. I would be running my mouth for the duration of the evening at any time. But I, I, I have certainly visualized success, but I visualize it and always have on my own terms. You know, what makes me feel successful day to day is as grateful, and I really am grateful for the opportunities that I have, as much as that is unbelievably gratifying. To me, how I define success is being able to provide information that is objective, that is credible, that gives people the ability to think for themselves with the information they need. And so night after night, that's when I feel proud. Not so much the name on the show, but that someone's watching, someone's listening, and they're a little bit more informed, they feel a little bit more connected, and they feel greater power to have a role in their lives. And so that was on my vision board, and that's how I define my success. The fact that it says Laura Coates Live and it's got this incredible set and it's it's beautiful is really, truly icing on a multi-tiered cake. Uh, so just a quick question. The Panera Bread had a fireplace? Yes. <laughs> yes, it did. It's a bougie Panera was, Bread. It was gas operated, mind you. Like I'm, okay. it was, I'm sure they had carbon monoxide <laughs> testers everywhere yeah, as yeah. well. Let's hope. Find yourself one. And I wish I could say at the end of it, I, I joke around like, at the end, I just have to be like, and now I own Panera. But yeah. I now I'm the right. best franchisee of Panera Bread there is. <laughs> but you know what's funny? Every time I have like a major decision to make. Or you go to some, Panera Bread? No way. I go to Panera Bread. Wow. That's I great. I get an That's... Zone, like one of the Pico keys, and I'm like, what shall I do? <laughs> That's, That's like amazing. the new spot for uh, for manifesting your dreams, I guess. Yeah, Panera Bread. I got to try it out. I got to try it out. You'll catch me and Diana there all week. Um, Great. <laughs> so uh, I have a question. It's a sort of a two-parter. There are a lot of analysts that you see on TV, legal or otherwise, and yeah. they just want to stick in that lane. They either want to be a reporter or a contributor and give their analysis view. And then there's a lot of analysts that make the jump from uh, contributor to host or anchor. And you actually, from what I understand, you you raised your hand to put yourself forward for a, a hosting gig. Is being behind the anchor desk something that you've always wanted to do? I have always wanted to have the opportunity um, to, to have that platform. I did raise my hand. Mm. Um, I think, frankly, you will really always subscribe, and I certainly do. Closed mouths don't get fed. And I have a hunger to have the opportunities I do. Mm-hmm. And I know that sometimes when you look at somebody on paper, you might say, well, they haven't followed a specific path 
Therefore, I will discount who they might be. I don't subscribe to that. And I raised my hand with authority and to become and be my own champion. Now, fortunately, I've had many champions in this business who have been um, very kind, who have, but I've also heard a lot of no's, a lot of no's. I know it seems like when you see the path as it's explained in hindsight, it must seem like a bit of a through line. It was not. It was a lot of reps. It was a lot of time. It was a lot of energy. I mean, don't forget, I have done a daily radio show, talk show for years. It was three hours a day in addition to what I was doing on television. Now it's two hours a day in the morning. So my day begins and ends burning both ends of a candle. I love what I do, but it was not an overnight sensation. It was not an overnight effort. And for that I'm very grateful because it required me to do the work and it required me to still do the work. Um, being an anchor is very different though than being a guest on a show um, because I'm not responsible solely for the responses. I'm also curating the conversation. I'm serving on the one hand as a contributing member to a conversation and also as a guide. And it is my job and my pleasure to be able to fact check in real time, to call balls and strikes, and to try to anticipate the questions that the audience also has, and to get them answered. One, one thing I couldn't, I can't stand, that's why I never as an analyst did this, maybe it's my chops from being a, a, a prosecutor and doing appellate work as well, and that when a judge would ask a question, the question has an answer. It doesn't have a platitude. It has an answer. Now, there might be some explanations that help to understand understand better, but there's an answer to the question. And so what I like to do is when I either, if I'm as an analyst, sitting with Wolf Blitzer, or as an anchor, sitting there having the conversation, is to make sure that the questions are answered. And um, that really is a skill set, I think, that really is applicable from the law to journalism. And um, that's what I still love. I want to talk about the new show. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, as some viewers have noticed, I think, uh, and as you've, you've spoken about, the set is remarkably similar to a certain set uh, from yesteryear, like yeah. King Live, uh, the yeah. iconic CNN show, which was the longest running and highest rated show on CNN. Uh, it's also, it has a, a, a similar name. Uh, mm -hmm. What are you trying to do with the show? What's the idea behind it? Uh, and, and how has it been going? Well, obviously, I'm trying to make it okay for me to one day wear suspenders on air every day. That's, That's clearly the goal. Dream. Like I, Always. I, just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the dream, right? To be able to what lean in on your elbows, have yeah. the conversations. In fact, I, the first show I paid homage to him, I wore suspenders the first day to make mm -hmm. sure I wasn't. And it's, it's not a coincidence. I respected his career so much. I grew up watching him. I think probably all of us are familiar with him. Even my kids remember now Larry <laughs> King because he was in the B movie as a B version of Larry King talking to a B version of Larry Seinfeld. My kids know Larry King. So it's no coincidence. Um, what I love about and will continue to do is to have real conversations, not just interviews, but the kinds of conversations that real people are having, that we have and give it time to breathe, that it's the most interesting stories, the most interesting people from the perspective of a conversation. It's not intended to be gotcha. 
It's not intended to lead you. You know, one of the things that Larry King was famous for was when he had an author on, he wouldn't read the book. He would say, <laughs> tell me about your book, right? Why, why should I read this book? And I have a similar um, adage, although I certainly read everything that's before me, but the point of it is to make sure that it's as con conversant and conversational as possible. Sticking to the journalistic integrity of, it's got to be the most impactful stories. Everyday people, everyday stories. What are you talking about at home? When you know, at 11 o'clock at night, most people are in their beds. They're deciding what they want to watch. They're deciding, um, have they had enough? Have they heard enough? Are they wondering more? And um, the goal of this show is to give people the opportunity to feel like they understand better what's happened today, but they're getting ahead for tomorrow. It really is the last opportunity of the day to make sure people have have saturated. I mean, have um, have like have exhausted every aspect of it. So I do that, and also it'll be a combination. It's not just going to be you know the Washingtonian insiders. It's the people you're interested in. It's the people that you're talking about in your car, at your parties, in your house, talking to your girlfriends. And I guarantee you, it's not just Secretary of State. It's not just this member of Congress. It's everything that runs the gamut. And I don't know if you realize, I am unabashedly interested in everything from politics to pop culture, to sports, to the messiness and in between. And I'll have it all. If it's the big story, I'm gonna cover it. Love that. Now, uh, Larry King was famous for being a little soft in his interviewing. He certainly wasn't confrontational. He rarely asked a tough question. There's an argument that that's one of the qualities that made him a great interviewer. But mm. now I would say more so than ever, anchors face pretty harsh criticism if they don't really challenge guests. You know, that, that's something that's happened since really the, the Trump era. Yeah. Chuck Todd was treated with pretty ruthless criticism on Twitter for his job at, at Meet the Press, uh, for example. You're a former federal prosecutor. That's like a completely different breed than what we're talking about here with, with Larry King. So my question is, what kind of interviewer do you plan to be? The kind of interviewer I already am. I'm no shrinking violet. I certainly do not believe that you're going to extract the most information by having the person only on their feet, on back their back feet, right? right. I am very adept and very skilled um, at having the kinds of conversation where the goal is to extract information and elicit the information. I don't think it's productive if you come with the approach of, I've invited you to speak, to then take the opportunity to grandstand for right. me to use it as, hey, I only had you here so I could bully you. Because it I shuts them down. You don't get any it information. Shuts right? them down, shuts them down. They get no information. And guess what? Then your audience doesn't have information. And all you've proven is that you're able to talk to a wall. Well, <laughs> I can talk to a wall. Not particularly interesting. So I, I look at it as, um, again, trying to get the information in the best way. And I think that I have a, as much as I'm direct, I am equally disarming. And that is sincere because I want to know the answer to the questions I'm asking. I don't ask them just to make myself sound like I have a vocabulary. I asked the question because I want the answer. I invited you here because I wanted to hear you speak. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you get the platform just to speak nonstop. But I do expect a conversation, not someone who isn't who is either going to, I don't want a screaming match, 
And um, I will not debate obvious points, but I will have a conversation. Right. And, and speaking of that conversation, the show has a really nice pace. It feels a little more analytical than, as we said earlier, the news burst of CNN's daytime schedule. Is that the goal of the show to offer viewers something more deliberative? Yes, absolutely. Because I don't think, you know, I, I can equate sometimes just because we're all drinking and consuming the news through a fire hose in any given day with 50 states in this country and part of a global world that we're in, there's so much information and people will almost find themselves um, frenetic in trying to cover everything. And so it ends up being soundbite and headline and headline. But I think it's important to take a breath and to allow the conversations to breathe. And that's very intentional. You know, I wouldn't take a bullhorn to my mouth and start shouting at you at 11 p.m., perhaps at the end of your day. But what I would do is expect, what kind of conversations would I want to have? And what am I listening for at that hour or really any hour? But how do I consume information? And I think the best way to consume information is to acknowledge that the audience um, on the one hand is very sophisticated. On the other hand, no question is a stupid question. And it's our jobs as journalists not to produce television for other journalists who have been so read in all day long that we're watching the same show, hearing the news. It's to bridge the gap between people who have real lives, want the information, but they also now want to understand it. So this show is intended to be at a slower pace, to be more contemplative, to have that conversation, it's not intended, nor will it be, um, that frenetic energy. At the same time, I mean, you would think I'm very caffeinated, although I don't even drink caffeine. Like, I'm a very charismatic, I'm, I'm, I am on. I am, when you second my feet hit the ground, it's like, she's up, oh God, she's up. So that energy is still there. Um, maybe you like it, uh, I call it kind of a nightcap, right? It's right. Like espresso martini. <laughs> oh, I like Love that. that. Love that. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about CNN uh, yeah. more broadly. It's been a turbulent few years for CNN, I would say, just in terms of leadership. You had Jeff Zucker, who left. Yeah. Then we had the Chris Licht era. That was about 18 months, uh, a little bit rocky. Uh, did you deal much with, with Chris Licht? And, and how did you think he handled the job at CNN? You know, I'm based in Washington, D.C. So when I interacted with Chris was when he was in DC or he would I'd go to New York as well. And um, certainly being anchoring um, at different hours as I was, we certainly had interactions and he would um, be involved in those discussions. Um, I was not privy to all the information or directives that Chris Licht had. It seemed very amorphous to me and I just wasn't privy to the end game. And so right. what my approach was always is as it is in life that I recognize that I need to be my own champion and I would do those in those discussions as well. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there were, obviously he he left CNN after there were a few sort of major missteps at the end there. There was the town hall with Trump uh, that got some criticism. There was the Atlantic article that he participated in. What, what were you thinking at the time when all of that was, was happening? You know, I was clear, and I'm not somebody to say one thing behind closed doors and another in front of the camera. Mm. 
following the town hall that my colleague, Caitlin Collins, I thought did a wonderful job in the role that she was provided and that she right. was professional and she was committed as she always is. I spoke on camera about how I thought that the statements made um, were outrageous. That was the words that I used and I explained it clearly that night in the moment. I didn't change my opinion of it by the virtue of hindsight, but that's precisely what we ought to do as journalists, which is to not attempt to simply say what is popular or what might be received, but instead what is the truth. As my colleague and who I'm forced to be my mentor, whether she likes it or not, Christiana Lampour, is our job is to be objective, not neutral. And mm. so um, when that is the, when that is what we're not biased, of course, but just uh, neutral, right? Um, uh, I follow that and take that to heart. And I think that any decisions that were made that were in line with that philosophy were the right ones. Any decisions that were made that were not in line with that philosophy were those that should be course corrected. And I hope what will be. Mm. Well said. You were close with Don Lemon and filled in for him quite a bit on a CNN show. What did you think of his yeah. departure from the network? Did you think that was fair as we're speaking about objective? Well, I won't say were, I am close with Don Lemon. He <laughs> is a wonderful person. He still is a dear friend and a mentor. And I will tell you in a business that's not always kind and welcoming, he was the exception to that rule. Um, when others um, perhaps did not want to extend an opportunity for me to fill in, he was somebody who would put roses practically on the seat to let me know that I was welcome and he wanted to be able to have a hand in my success. And I am so grateful to him for that. He didn't have to, and he did. Mm. And that says a lot about him and his character. And um, that he didn't feel in any way as though he would be less if somebody else was more. And I thought that was such a wonderful thing. I'm really sad that he's no longer able to do on a daily basis, which I believe is his true calling, which is to be a voice, which is to be a champion and to be somebody who is a conduit of information. But knowing someone like Don, he will land not only on his feet, he will thrive in whatever he does next. Do you know what that is? Can you make some news for us here? I don't know what that is. So far, I think it probably is enjoying life as we know it, because let me tell you, these hours are no joke. No. Whether it was a ten-minute <laughs> one had, or it was if I ever had a morning show like he did from six to nine, Oof. I would still be taking a nap from my departure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so one uh, criticism that CNN faced unfair or fair uh, during the Trump years is that it became a sort of anti-Trump network that that there was that the coverage was 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 guided by uh, a disdain for Trump. What did you make of that criticism? Do you think it was ever fair? And do you think that the network has tried to move away from that at all? I don't think the characterization is sound. I mm. think that um, the network endeavored to provide the news and to provide the objective analysis through contributors who were across the spectrum many of whom were in support of Trump, many of whom were not in support of Trump. In fact, the criticism we most uh, largely had was that we were engaged in so much, um, you know, uh, giving the other side of issues that people thought that that was problematic and offering both sides-ism. So both can't be true. You can't accuse the network of being um, in one solid camp, and on the other hand, criticizing for providing 
both sides of issues, whether you think that both sides were warranted or not. I think under the guidance and under the leadership, though, of, um, of Mark, I think it is going to be something that I would dare anyone to challenge the journalistic chops of CNN. I think that he, as a the consummate journalist and very well regarded and familiar with what it takes to run a newsroom, given the news of the day, the news of the world, and at times the news of the second, I think there should be no doubt that CNN more than holds its own and should continue to be regarded with the credibility it has. What role do you think opinion should play in news reporting? Is there a time and a place for it? I think there is a time and a place for opinions, as long as it's clearly established that you, in fact, are giving an opinion. It should not be couched under the guise or auspices of objective fact if it truly is your opinion. Now, it's difficult sometimes, I think, um, because every single journalist, whether it's MSNBC, CNN, or Fox, or anywhere in between, people have their own personal opinions about an issue. And certainly it might guide the types of stories they would like to cover, but there is a responsibility as a journalist um, to ensure that the audience is aware that the information you're providing is either fact or opinion. And if you don't make that distinction, you fail and you lose your credibility. And that's not something that can be easily reclaimed. But I do think that the audience has an appetite for having opinion-based commentary as well that help to infuse the show with the color, with the conversation, and with the content that we're all talking about. Because I like to say it with Laura Coates Live, sometimes the conversation is the news. Take, for example, what's happening right now in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war and the continuing ongoing humanitarian crises. We would be fools to think that um, the conversations would not include the differing opinions across the spectrum about military strategies, about bigotry and bias, about conversations on college campuses, let alone everyday lives. And that's as much a part of, of objective and um, credible reporting as here is the weather and here is where the hurricane is going. You, you mentioned Fox there. I'm curious. Do you pay attention to Fox? What, what do you think? And, and what do you think about the way that that network does news? I watch all the networks because it's my responsibility to know what people are talking about and that I'm not simply trying to preach to a proverbial choir. I think it's important that we know what the anchors on Fox are talking about, what are the priorities that they are laying out in terms of the content, MSNBC similarly, mm. not because it's a competition, but because you know, I want to know what people are thinking, what people are feeling, and what people are responding to and care most about. That's how you decide what the biggest stories of the day are. It also is an opportunity for us to um, ensure that we are giving the information, period. I don't look at the, what they're doing to just simply say, oh, they covered this story, so now we should cover this story. I look at it mm -hmm. from the curious perspective that I have, but I ultimately want to know what the people care about and what the people have information about and where the gaps are. And I try to provide it. Mark Thompson, as you mentioned, is now at the helm of CNN. He yeah. is a very impressive news leader. He ran the show at mm -hmm. uh, the BBC, the New York Times, which he revived. And, and he's British. What's not to love? <laughs> 
Um, the accent always makes you sound great, doesn't oh, it? There you go. <laughs> he, don't tell anyone he's not sharp at all. No, I'm kidding. He has an incredibly <laughs> impressive resume. <laughs> uh, do you have a sense of the direction that he plans on taking CNN? And what's your impression of him so far? I have had the pleasure of meeting him many times now, and he's outstanding. I think he is a journalist's journalist. And I think he likes to roll up his sleeves. He's not in a golden tower. He is in the newsroom. And I think that is laudable and also essential. And from what I have seen so far, his primary objective is the news. And it's about ensuring that people understand that the only news you cover ought not to be what's happening in the District of Columbia or what's happening in Manhattan. It's a very big country and also a bigger world. And I really appreciate being somebody who was raised in Minnesota not from you know Washington DC, not from New York. Before that, I lived in Massachusetts and Worcester, Massachusetts to be exact. Um, yes, it's pronounced Worcester, not Worcester. Worcestershire. Um, <laughs> none of that. <laughs> right, not right. growing up in like the the biggest metropolitan areas of the country. Um, he does not have any interest in treating those places like flyover country. Mm. He wants people to understand that the news is supposed to be for everyone. And we have to be very broad and nuanced about what we cover to ensure that everyone feels connected and seen. Right. You serve as chief legal analyst for CNN and provided some really insightful analysis on the prosecutions of Trump. And there are a few now. We're not one year away from the 2024 election. Do you think Trump will face any consequences before election day? And is there any chance he ends up convicted and even sentenced before then? Well, I hadn't noticed. Has Trump been in some legal trouble? Let me think now. Um, yes, there's a number of things that he is battling. And I think part of the consequences are already happening. Um, I would challenge anyone to say that at least four prosecutions or litigations is something short of at least the beginnings of consequences. Um, if we define consequences as in part accountability, there is some reckoning that is already beginning through by virtue of there having been prosecutions, investigations. Now, that is not the end of the story at all. And the fact finders, whether it be the juries in these cases or a judge in other cases, he certainly has an uphill battle as any defendant does when the weight of the government is against them. It's not a political persecution, as he suggests, to have an acknowledge that there is a weight of the resources of a government against an individual litigant or defendant. But certainly, I've written about this a great deal in my book, Just Pursuit, that um, there is a weight when your name's on the other side of United States versus or this jurisdiction versus. And so he has an uphill battle, even in light of a presumption of innocence. I do think that... Um, Voters are going to have to make judgment calls about what weight they would like to carry into the future years. And the primaries will be the first indication of that, and the general, of course, the second. But I'm most intrigued by the cases that are happening right now in places like Colorado, where there are questions as to whether voters will even have a chance to have and see his name on the ballot in light of Colorado, for example, saying that the 14th Amendment disqualifies his ability to be on the ballot based on um, what they have defined as an insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And so 
there are a number of hurdles to overcome before the final answer of whether he'll face the ultimate consequence will be answered. But I hope the voters are paying attention and I hope to make the decision that's right for them and their own futures. And another major story right now is obviously the war between Israel and, and Hamas and Gaza. Yeah. The media has made some serious mistakes covering this in the fog of war. How do you deal with covering a story like this where the stakes are so high and the information is changing so rapidly? Here is one of those areas where um, perhaps my relative inexperience compared to my more seasoned colleagues who have certainly covered many more wars than I have, um, where that level of inexperience would maybe at first blush be viewed as making it all the more difficult to get it right, but I see as an asset because I'm asking the same questions. I'm wondering and treating with skepticism the responses. I'm viewing what is happening in real time, responding authentically, and trying to get information. And not just till I'm satisfied, but till people like my nine-year-old, my 10-year-old could understand the information and be able to make their own conclusions. And I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned even so far with the Israel-Hamas war has been about the extraordinarily steep learning curve that everyone is facing in trying to understand the history of the region the tension, the diplomatic relationships and the lack thereof. And it's a reminder that you cannot try to scale that learning curve with one segment. It is an ongoing process. I try to make it as digestible and bite-sized because it will be a part of a longer conversation over time. And so what I've been doing is breaking it up piece by piece and not taking for granted that everyone knows everything about the region, knows everything about what could be the contextual factors, um, or that everyone has the same opinion. I break it down definitionally at times. Even at one segment, I, I stopped to say and define, by the way, here's what the Iron Dome actually is. We talk about these things. Here's what a kibbutz is for the audience who, do, who might, might not know. Here is what the region entails. Here is what the blockade was politically. Here's who's in control. Here are the other countries that are neighboring the region and who might be the key players, who stands to gain, who might be more vulnerable. Really breaking it down because that's what information really is. I don't produce news for the experts. I produce news for the people and the people have questions and I'm going to ask them. That's a really great point. Like, it's so funny how cable, I mean, the entire news media works where it's like there, a, a war breaks out in Ukraine because Russia invades. And then suddenly news consumers have to suddenly figure out what the Donbass right. is, what, what Chechnya is, how it was invaded before by Putin. Like there's all of this context that suddenly you have to get learned, learned in on. And it's good to have a show where um, that gets broken down. One and by the uh, way, on that yeah. point, just I should say, you know, um, the sometimes you have to realize what the news is not, mm. um, and the news is I my objective is not to persuade you to feel something one way or the other. My objective is to give you the information so you have informed feelings, right. so you know where they're coming from. And certainly, one of the most difficult aspects of this war has been the 
the terrorism, the the horrific images that have come out, having to almost go back to my roots as a prosecutor in some ways and learn to compartmentalize in order to provide the information. And it's difficult. It's a very emotional process. I am not a robot. I am not made of stone. I am a mother. I'm a human being. And the images are horrible. And so I have to really be intentional about my exposure to them to ensure that I am um, able to sustain what will be the length of this coverage and right. beyond. Right, right. Yeah, that's such a good point. And also, you know, one of the things, one of the challenges that I've seen that, that cable news has faced is, is figuring out story selection because mm. there's there's so many horrible facets to this uh, conflict. You know, there was obviously the atrocities of Hamas against the people uh, of Israel. There's now settler violence in the West Bank. There's the bombing campaign in Gaza. And I find that figuring out what stories to highlight, I mean, you probably helped in, in the fact that, that you were a, a, a prosecutor in assessing sort of what, what should get coverage and what shouldn't and where you should prioritize coverage. Is that something that you found to be a challenge? That's the benefit of being at 11 p.m. I've seen right. what everyone else has done all day. Um, yeah. I've heard the stories. And now I'm picking up almost like a closer of a baseball game. I won't say the Yankees because my husband's from the Bronx and I refuse to go there because <laughs> I, of course, was a Red Sox fan growing up. So I'm not going to talk about your closers. But imagine I'm a closer in pinstripes. Okay. Sure. So imagine. <laughs> um, and you, know, you come in to, to finish it. Mm. You come in to answer and fill in the gaps. Um, it's not that I have to just only rely on what they're doing and then I'm only reactive, but it's also at the end of the day, what am I, what am I still grappling with? What, what right. hasn't been addressed? And also um, there are a thousand stories at any given moment that deserve coverage. Mm. They really do. And so sometimes it is difficult um, to balance, gosh, with the time that you have, which do I prioritize and which are informational and which warrant the conversation? Mm. And then how many guests do I have for the conversation? And gosh, is that the guest I want to have? Because you know, that person hasn't come up for air in two years. <laughs> when they right. have a conversation and what can you talk about? Um, so it's, it is difficult, but I, I love that I have a supportive and creative team who is working with me to figure out what's best. And speaking about working out and finding out what's best with your team, you host a show five nights a week. How do you mm -hmm. prepare for it? What's your routine? Well, you know, they say you don't have to get ready if you stay ready. So I just try to stay ready. I am a voracious mm -hmm. reader and um, there's really not a day off or really an hour off from, from checking in. Although um, one thing I like to do is I, I, give my, I block my time off so that I ensure that I have downtime because in my downtime, that's where the processing comes in. That's where you're thinking about it. If you're just reading, you're never really able to process, assess, and take that step back that I think really elevates the conversation from regurgitating information to bridging an intellectual gap and pushing and moving the needle forward. And so I make sure I schedule the time to, to comprehend and process and have those discussions. But then I, you know, I am somebody who works out. I, um, I do not, I try to drink as much water as I can, even though I wish it was some juice instead, <laughs> <laughs> but I try to, I try to hydrate. I try to work out. Um, but also, I mean, I, I am 
a, a devoted and thank you, beloved wife and daughter and sister and mother and friend. And that's really important to me as well um, to make sure that I'm in the world that I'm speaking about. I, I go back to this really basic point. I remember um, Trevor Noah, who's one of my favorite uh, comedians, um, him saying that he was talking to Chris Rock one day and um, Chris Rock told him, you know, gosh, I kind of, I'm paraphrasing here, but I kind of feel bad for you. You've got to get back on the road. You're not really a comedian any longer until you've lived and you're out there and you're observing the world. And then it makes your comedy that much better because you now are able to talk about it. You've got a, you know, a repertoire that builds on a daily basis. That's how I feel about being somebody who's the anchor of, of a news program. If I'm not in the world, if I'm not living in the world, then I can't talk about it with authority. So I schedule time to do that. And frankly, I'm unapologetic when I do. Um, I need to rejuvenate and, um, and I want my team to do the same because the team is only as good as the experiences that we're prepared to bring, share, and convey through our coverage, through the tone of our coverage. And um, otherwise we risk being in a bubble and we just keep doing the same stories that are just out there. We gotta find what people care about. And sometimes it's really hiding in plain sight. And if you're too busy worrying about um, clocking time in the office just to be seen there, you're gonna miss it. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura, do you wanna wrap this up with a rapid round? Does that sure. sound good to you? It'll be, it's a very brief rapid round. I'm yes. looking at it. We only have four I'm rapid round questions. But... I do. I'm not talking any faster, but I, but I will. Fair, fair. Remember the old I... micro machines commercial? I won't do that, but okay. I mean, I mean. I remember you... those. <laughs> yes. uh, all right. First question, where do you get your news? Everywhere. From Everywhere. CNN. Okay. <laughs> Anna? You used to do theater and you like to sing. Yes. If you could star in any musical, which one would it be? The Wiz, Dorothy. Oh, nice. Nice one. Best guest you've ever interviewed? Hmm. To be determined. Ooh, wait. Aww. One uh, dream guest. I'm going to replace that with dream guest. Oh, Eddie Murphy. Mm, good one. Very cool. Any advice for a future journalist and or writer? Be your own champion and wear your own jersey. Don't biz, don't don't risk slowing down because you're looking to your left and right to see who's next to you. Just run your own race and you'll be great. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Laura. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And check out coverage of our conversation with Laura Coates on Mediaite.com.